1: PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: As you know, this show is a damp and sweaty member of the Agora Podcast Network. This month, it is my pleasure to once again call your collective attention to Steve Guerra's History of the Papacy podcast. Much like how my show is purportedly about the wars of the Reformation, but has thus far spent all of 2020 talking about marginalized groups in the early Middle Ages, uh, History of the Papacy is technically about the papacy, but talks about so much more. To contextualize the story, Steve talks about heresy, the development of Christian theology, and the development of church hierarchies. The show was a great companion to this one, as it happens, and Steve and I have collaborated on many occasions. So go check it out wherever fine podcasts are found by the side of the road. This month we have numerous, several, patrons and donors to thank. Up first, uh, we have Jeremiah the Ginger, Archbishop of Farmlandia, who has, due to numerous bribes paid to me, translated his diocese illegally to another location, and therefore, he shall be known from henceforward as Jeremiah, the Mad Bishop of Malta. The slightly corrupt. Up next, we have Jeff, who has requested the cognomen Jeff, the double-defenestrated dunce, which is very hard to say. And finally, we have Donor Emil, who shall be known from this day to many other days due to the fine character of his contributions to the realm. He shall be known as Earl Emil IronEars, which is also hard to say, but I picked that one voluntarily. Anyway, thank you to Earl Emil IronEars and to all of our lovely donors and patrons. Without you, the lights would probably stay on because electricity isn't very expensive, but it would be hard to produce this show and justify the expense of my time, and it would be very impossible to pay andrew for his services so andrew and hi thank you very much if you wish to join their surried ranks as a donor or patron of this show go to the link that will be in the show notes this time and check out the website and go to the donate page and either uh, become a patron or a donor via paypal rate and review us on itunes all that stuff If you're in the group that listens to this podcast, you know this stuff. You've heard it. Just consider yourself scolded and told to go do stuff. On with the show. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. But this is not their story. Somewhere in Ireland, at some time of day, Sometime between the years of 400 and 1168.
1: Though the stranger should or should not possess a cowshed and a milking yard, it is not unlawful not to submit to his suit in Uradhus' law, or to prevent him from taking distress until he brings a native along with him. But it is unlawful in Cain law not to submit to the suit of the stranger, who has a fold and a milking yard, even though he does not bring a native along with him and if there be evasion, a fine for evasion is to be paid by the person who evades, and if illegality has been committed in the taking of the distress, he, the stranger, has to pay a fine for illegal distress. But when the stranger has not a cowshed or a milking yard, it is not unlawful not to allow him to levy his suit in cane law or Radhus law, until he brings a native along with him. As to strangers and foreigners, lunatics, infants and idiots, and bondmen, it is not unlawful not to allow them to levy their suit, or not to permit them to take distress, whether in their own behalf or the behalf of others, until they bring a native along with them, whether they procure him for a fee or not. Quote from
0: Sankos also known as the Ancient Laws of Ireland, as transcribed and translated by Dr. O'Donovan and Professor O'Curry at the behest of Her Majesty's government in 1865. Quote read, very sportingly, by Sam Hume of the Pax Britannica podcast. Neither Sam nor I really understand what is being said in this quote because of the proliferation of double negatives. Uh, run the intro. Uh
1: And the end of the story From the sharks and the jets To the call in the morning
0: Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs Your host as we move towards Wittenberg and Westphalia The Wars of the Reformation This is episode 68 A short discussion of the law as a source In the last few episodes We've been discussing women in the Middle Ages From the overarching theories and historiography To the impact of medieval views of sex Last time out, we looked at the surprisingly large role women played in the medieval economy, doing everything from heavy farm work, crafts, to household management. I even suggested that their gendered work role as household managers may have caused women to be a proximate cause, have a central role, if slightly off-screen, in the restarting of the medieval economy. Today, however, is going to be a brief digression into the value of legal documents as a source. Pretty much like the title said. This will set us up nicely for the next episode, where we will begin to discuss the status of women in early medieval legal codes, but basically I ended up writing this episode and more than half the length ended up being devoted to this methodological discussion, and I knew that the rest of the episode was going to be like three times that, if not more, so I decided to make this a nice short episode with a tight, nice focus on this one thing, and then we can go back to just rambling next time. This isn't rambling. Now, I've mentioned law codes, charters, and other legal documents many times in this show. And indeed, we have already had one discussion of their strengths and weaknesses as a source in our discussion of city charters. To review the broad strokes of the subject, written law codes came in and out of focus during this period. The Romans had them, and some early medieval empire builders used them as well, notably Charlemagne, his peers and his immediate successors. As time went on, however, government structures in Europe fractured apart, legal thought of the Middle Ages tended to move to the view that an entirely new law was a suspicious thing, and the word innovation was used as a pejorative. More critically, in an era of widespread illiteracy, the point of such documents was unclear, Indeed, it may have been church institutions that began to demand written legal documents to underscore their land claims, and they certainly began producing a library worth of forgeries. These were highly effective, and so the use of the written word returns to the historical record starting around the years 900 to 1000 or so, which incidentally is purportedly the time period we're taking this break to talk about. The issue we need to address today is how much faith we should place in legal documents as source of evidence. If Charlemagne issued a law banning the existence of inflated party balloons, just to use a ridiculous example, would that tell us that no one used party balloons? Or would it actually indicate that somehow people had access to both plastic paint-printed dyes and uh, elemental helium in the 7th century? Before I get into it, some credit where credit is due. None of this methodological difficulty is new information to me, but I do need to call out a source that was particularly helpful in clarifying the scale of this issue in modern historiography. Dr. Alice Rio's Slavery After Rome, 500 to 1000, is obviously not on topic in terms of women in the Middle Ages. I am trying to read ahead, but this has a very, very insightful discussion of the value of legal codes in terms of the discussions of marginalized populations in general. It was so insightful that it made me realize I needed to include a fuller discussion of the subject in the of the law in history before devoting at least one episode to talking about how the law saw women. Now then, let's get to it. Legal codes have long been seen as a treasure trove of information for historians attempting to record how medieval society worked. This is because the ambition of a legal code is almost always more pervasive than what you get in the literary evidence of the time, while all sources only write down what they think is important. Chroniclers often have a very narrow scope for what they think is important, which tends to relate to things like glorifying a patron, conveying something that they think is a basic truth of reality, or even just whatever seems like interesting news to a bunch of bookish men locked up together for the rest of their lives in a stone abbey in the middle of nowhere. Ducks get featured. Law codes go much further. While there are exceptions, law codes are usually attempting to lay down, broadly, the correct outcome of any interaction between two or more people in which something happens that damages to society in general. In doing this, they ideally want to take into account what happened and the circumstances of that event. Since society is infinitely complex, no single code really covers all eventualities, but most make a decent attempt. In modern times, in developed countries, laws are supposed to apply equally regardless of who is involved, though exceptions are made for children and related categories. Also, due to cheap printing and effectively free online storage, legislatures feel no need to limit the length or verbosity of their work, though the fact that no one reads them anymore means that the codes of today are simultaneously long on detail while terse on prose. Social class in pre-modern societies was much more multifaceted, and so law codes contain rules that lay out different kinds of interactions between different kinds of people in different social classes, and how those interactions should be governed as a result. Educated people also read these codes, so the creator of the code also generally wanted to stamp the code with their ideology and, you might say, their brand. On the other hand, materials were limited, and so there were a lot of creative attempts to cram as many possible permutations of a legal decision into as small a space as possible, while leaving room at the beginning for a nice preamble about God and stuff. Now, the law codes to be discussed in the next episode will vary greatly by their contexts, both in terms of time and place, and laying out at least the broad strokes of these is probably important. I say this not only so we will understand the context next time, but because the context will also help us understand some of the serious methodological issues historians have with legal codes. The first codes we need to address are those of the late Roman Empire. Notably, the codes of Theodosius and Justinian were available in some places in the Middle Ages and were initially influential before fading in influence for a few centuries. The Code of Justinian would eventually make a comeback and become extremely influential in late medieval, early modern, and even modern legal systems, and it's regarded by modern historians and legal scholars as a great achievement. Meanwhile, the Code of Theodosius is seen as a somewhat hard-to-read and sloppy entry into the legal genre. Ironically, it seems that the breakdown in communications between the Eastern Roman Empire and the early Middle Ages meant that it was the earlier Theodosian Code that made it most reliably into Western libraries. As a result, many early medieval legal codes mined the Theodosian Code for precedent, while ignoring the Justinian Code, which they probably didn't know existed. The next set of codes were those in the Germanic kingdoms. For example, the law codes put out by the Lombards in Italy, the Visigoths in Spain, the Merovingian Franks, or the various Anglo-Saxon dynasties in England. These are always interesting because of the mix of traditional Germanic ideas with the fact that they were actually being written down by and under the encouragement of clerics who tried to slip the odd Christian gloss over things. An outlier from this group, and so important as to deserve their own paragraph, are the legal pronouncements made by Charlemagne and those he influenced. Charlemagne actually didn't necessarily write one law code, but put out a steady stream of laws called capitularies all through his reign. We've discussed this in earlier episodes. Early on, they tended to touch on a variety of subjects, and towards the end they served more to correct or update individual earlier laws. This concept was imitated by several English kings, but was of course more relevant to Charlemagne's immediate successors. By the time of Charles the Bad, the last person who we could really say ruled a unified Carolingian empire, there was a need to compile things into a law code again, and what he came out with was in many ways more conservative than the straight-up declarations of his ancestor. Charles, instead of making these declarations from on high, attempted to present his laws as simply synthesizing existing law and not trying to stir things up too much. At the same time, his codes also tried to be more comprehensive, which showed the influence of the Roman codes. Of course, everyone kind of saw him as useless. He died of the fatal illness of invading Italy while Frankish, got deposed and stuffed in a barrel. It's very unclear whether anyone ever followed his laws, which is an important point we will come back to. An outlier worth mentioning, but much less influential, at least in terms of population size, are the legal codes of Ireland. These are an interesting counterpoint to the European codes, since Ireland was never Romanized, was not Germanic, but was influenced, at least at a distance, by the Latin Church. These codes, I don't know if you can even call them codes, these sort of compilations of Breham law were created in the context of a highly decentralized legal system entirely reliant on oral tradition. This concept of oral tradition was fine for the original power structures of Ireland, but once the church arrived, there was a need for property to be managed past the lifetime of any single individual, so these clerics occasionally made the effort to try and write down what they understood of the traditional legal system. This is a fascinating look into the very unique clan and family structures of Ireland, including a very unique but fully formed concept of property and social relations. Sadly, we don't have a ton of time to go into the specifics of Braham Law, which is what we call the traditional Irish laws, uh, but we will come back to it a little bit in a, later in the episode. After Charles the Bald, we don't really get much in the way of legal codes until the 900 to 1000 time period, which I will get back to in a second. What we do find occasionally are the wills of wealthy nobles. Usually these documents involved some sort of donation to a religious institution, and as a result, that institution preserved the will. We also sometimes find the record of religious institutions' legal decisions vis-a-vis their tenants and properties over whom they had legal jurisdiction to make judgments. These documents help tell us much about how laws were actually being implemented. Finally, we have the flourishing of charters, guild regulations, canon law, and eventually even new legal codes put out across Western and Central Europe starting in the 900 to 1000 era. Of these, it's worth particularly calling out the codes in Italy and Spain. In Italy, the rising city-states had effective legislative institutions capable of passing legitimate laws, particularly in the context of a revival of legal training and practice, thanks to the presence of the church and its canon law courts and universities. In Spain, the monarchs of the region were also able to institute new laws, but this wasn't due so much to a rise of stronger institutions or legal practice as much as the fact that the Reconquista gave them a clean slate and an ability to entice settlers into a region with clean and straightforward legal codes. A somewhat similar process happened in England after the Norman Conquest. Okay, so now that we've talked about some of the positives of law codes and the wider context of these law codes, let's talk about the issues. I think the biggest thing to bring up is going to require us to think back to what we know about the narrative arc of Charlemagne and his empire. Early on, he was powerful and confident. He ordered his nobles to learn to read so that they could help administer his empire, and then he started pumping out all these laws. Part of the reason that he was strong and confident was his large, infantry-based army. More than one historian, however, has noted that these laws seem increasingly weak over the course of his reign. Anytime the interests of the poor, who made up his army, and the wealthy nobles, who administered his empire, conflicted in these laws, you end up seeing laws issued multiple times, or even being gradually watered down. This has been taken as evidence that the empire was losing the ability to control the relationship between the nobles, the empire, and the free peasants, who made up the army and were kind of important. Over the course of the subsequent generations, it became clear that the empire could not restrain the nobles, who proceeded to take public power for their private use and ultimately fragmented the empire. All of this is to say, just because someone passes a law, it doesn't mean that that law is how society really works. For most of the early Middle Ages, we have no idea what kind of follow-through there was on some of these legal codes. The one thing we can say with certainty is that... If even Charlemagne himself never learned to read, what chance is there that anyone outside the clergy and the very wealthiest nobles would have been able to read a legal code? And since it would be centuries before every village had a priest at all, let alone a literate one, the access of most peasants to written culture was probably very minimal until the end of our period. Not coincidentally, this is when we start seeing law codes and charters popping up left, right, and center. Many historians now see law codes as entirely aspirational or even as a kind of propaganda or a keeping up with the Joneses kind of thing. Think about it like this. You're a newly Christian king somewhere in Northern Europe. You're feeling powerful and awesome. Your priest comes to you and says, My lord, your power is truly supreme, but what are you going to do with it? After making some kind of lewd joke about eating a leg of ham and kissing lots of pretty ladies, at which the priest might politely smile, the polite priest might suggest that you might do something good for your people that will endure after you have gone on to what will definitely be heaven. Thinking about the last village you raised to the ground, you shift uncomfortably in your seat and ask if he has any suggestions. After going through a bunch of things about giving land to the church or feeding the poor, he mentions making some laws. You ask about the laws and he says, sure. Why, the king Theodosius of Greece made a whole book full of laws that have endured for centuries. For thousands of miles, people know he was a good king. Not only that, but Tom, your rival in the next kingdom over, I hear he has a law code too now. And so, you set the priests to work, working on a new law code for you, you occasionally duck in to give some advice, and you go back to your leg of ham. The priests have a lot to gain in this scenario, of course. Beyond the fact that churches in general are just big fans of rules, the church as an institution needed a way to ensure that their resources would be available past the lifetimes of any individual. On the other hand, certainly some of the kings responsible for creating law codes were personally invested in the idea. Alfred springs to mind, and obviously Charlemagne. But be that as it may, the actual social impact of such a law code could definitely be more limited than modern law codes. I mean, that just goes without saying. And the real point of making these codes was as much about the perceptions held amongst the king's most educated contemporaries and posterity as it was on ordering the kingdom. Is there any way to determine how much these codes tell us about how a society worked? Well, if you had a second set of documents that record instances where people interact with legal institutions, that would tell you how effective the legal codes ended up being in terms of how they were put into practice. For instance, if you have a legal code that says everyone must wear orange at all times, you have a bunch of legal evidence where, you know, people are wearing fuchsia. I don't even know what fuchsia is. Anyway, you get my point. My point is that some sort of other set of legal documents that show how the laws were implemented might help us out here. As it happens, we do have some such documents, as I said earlier, in terms of wills and legal decisions from uh, lower-level courts. Unfortunately, these do contain their own biases. You may have spotted it earlier, if you're head of the class. The evidence we have comes mostly, though not entirely, from religious institutions, who preserved the documents because they did something that was important for them, namely preserve information about their own property. And this can really distort the picture. (sighs) This is going to be a major issue in the upcoming series of episodes about slavery and unfreedom. In terms of women, the distortion is less intense. Without giving anything away for those future episodes, the church didn't have any special institutional issues in terms of how it related to women per se. It just had less to do with them in general. People don't cross the church's documentary radar unless they are giving a gift or have ended up in a church-owned manor court. And while women's status does make this more rare, it does not make it entirely absent. So a wealthy widow who is nearing her end may choose to give a gift to the church. And whatever the church's views on women, the church will say thank you. And then that'll tell us something about the wider social situation of women and property rights. On the other hand, if a woman ends up in court and the church is her lord, the subsequent legal decision will tell us probably not how the church feels about her, but what the normal legal procedures might be for women who end up in a court. Because again, the institutional needs of the church don't really care so much about gender, they care about laws being followed in this context. So just to sort of round this short episode out, what of the legal codes we touched on were the most impactful? Well, making definitive statements is nearly impossible, and none of the sources I consulted for these episodes were specifically des- dedicated to researching the issue, though I live in full confidence that there are volumes of research out there for anyone who wants to look into it. But to keep this simple, I'm going to just give my off-the-cuff, unsteadied opinion on the matter based on the research I have available and what we discussed earlier about the context of legal codes in this era. I think it would be reasonable to say that at the low end of the effectiveness spectrum, we might expect to find laws written by Charles the Bald, maybe some of the laws written by the Anglo-Saxon kings who didn't stay in power very long, and the Salic law of the Merovingian Franks. In all these instances, the political authority putting out these law codes was in the process of disintegration, and the general public at the time, including the aristocrats, were illiterate, and there was almost no institutional capacity to bring people like priests in to retain or disseminate the written laws. In the middle category, I'm going to put the Edicts of Charlemagne and the Law Code of Alfred the Great, whose subjects may have been illiterate, but whose army was powerful and loyal. Alfred's descendants also ended up having a good century of stable rule before the kingdom collapsed. And both rulers presided over a major expansion of literacy under the influence of the northern monastic systems. On the other hand, we know that both men had to work through a nobility that basically instituted laws when they were convenient for the nobility, and we have evidence that not a few of these laws were flagrantly ignored. While it's somewhat silly to say that any of these codes were highly effective, this is something of a relative scale, and so it's worth crowning some winners. On the high end of the effectiveness scale, we can point to the laws of the Lombards as maybe oddly effective. The Lombards themselves may have been a bunch of barely literate warlords who it is something of a stretch to even call a coherent cultural unit, but they ruled over a largely Roman population that still retained much of the day-to-day functioning of its legal system and institutions. As a result, we have plenty of evidence of wills and legal decisions showing how the laws were followed in practice, and if it isn't a one-to-one matchup to the legal codes, it was close-ish. For many of the same reasons, I'm putting the Visigothic Codes of Spain in the top spot. This decision has one big caveat, namely that both these kingdoms collapsed in spectacular fashion. In the case of the Visigoths, they arguably never really settled into Iberia after being driven out of Francia. Though, I mean, they were in there for a a bunch of decades, Uh, so they, they settled in to some extent. But then they collapsed, like, overnight as soon as the North African Muslims started to invade. In the case of the Lombards, the conquering group, namely the Franks, actually really left the legal system substantially in place, which makes me very comfortable with putting them on the top. In the Visigothic Kingdom, this was less true, which makes their claim to the top spot somewhat marginal, but we do have a good bit of evidence uh, in terms of legal decisions and wills and stuff like that. Let's finish with some honorable mentions. The Codes of Theodosius and Justinian would be influential in Europe for centuries, particularly the Code of Theodosius, which as I said before was turned to as a source book for kings looking for an example of how to do law codes. According to some historians, this may explain why the legal codes from this period can be a bit confusing. In any case, these two codes are ultimately in a different kind of category, since they were not created for the territory or people that ended up using them as governing documents. For completely opposite reasons, I struggled with where to put the Irish legal codes, as that place was just gloriously operating by its own chaotic logic till that filthy Welshman strongbow showed up and ruined everything. I kid, somewhat. (laughs) That said, I haven't been able to study the pre-Norman period of Ireland much, except to know that the tales we get from that era would make the author of a Viking saga blush and develop a slight tremor. It's fascinating to think that all these peaceful church communes flourished amongst a political class that listened to the taine for entertainment. In any case, better historians than myself have said that there was something like a coherent legal set of traditions, but that it was massively decentralized and hardly codified. As such, the legal codes that we have are uniquely reflective of what the author thought was happening, rather than being a prescriptive attempt to impose a law code. Unfortunately, this still doesn't tell us much about how good a job the law code reflects practice, since we don't know how well the author did at interpreting what was going on, and we don't know how uniformly the codes were followed across the geographic extent of Ireland. Many may only reflect the legal situation in the immediate area where it was written down. We can probably say that any commonalities we find between the Brehen Law Codes might indicate a look at a deeper, more traditional kind of legal truth, but it is extremely difficult to know what any of this really means, and these law codes are weird to read. There's an admixture of of narrative and stuff into these law codes that is very unique to that time and place. Podcast footnote. If you want to learn more about early Irish history, check out Finn Dwyer's Irish History podcast. He covers a lot of different topics, not just early Irish history, but his series on the Norman invasion was a massive upgrade to my knowledge on the subject, given that I haven't studied it seriously since my ill-advised Irish nationalist phase in middle school. A link to that show in the show notes I'll also try to include a couple links to the online translations of the Breton Laws that do exist online. They're they're worth a, a skim. End podcast footnote. Where does all this leave us? Well, I think the best thing to say is that there are a bunch of levels to this kind of evidence. On the one hand, it tells us how a small but very powerful subset of society thought society should work. This in itself is valuable evidence. By the very framing of their statements, we can learn something of how they thought society did work. To make, take a fairly blunt example, if a code stipulated that the murder of a freeman by a servant woman carried a certain penalty, we can assume that the person who wrote the code had a worldview in which freemen and servants existed as separate classes, and that these classes were populated by both men and women. This may seem obvious, but a careful reading of these codes can bring to light a kaleidoscopic world of classes, subclasses, degrees of freedom, and possibly gendered roles. On the other hand, even these seemingly simple statements can be subject to revision when tested in practice. Ellis Rio's book contains a number of examples of situations where the legal code expounds on gradients between kinds of status that, in wills and legal decisions, were kind of glossed over as not particularly useful in practice. And we definitely should not assume that just because Charlemagne said that freedmen's rights would be protected from the nobility, or that Christians should not be sold as slaves to non-Christian destinations, this does not mean that such practices suddenly came to a halt. All this is to say that careful use of legal evidence can be very powerful, but it is as subject to interpretation and careful balancing as any other piece of written evidence. A careful historian has to treat a law as something like a hypothesis, and then seek other kinds of legal documents to corroborate and contextualize the law's efficacy in day-to-day practice. If it turns out it wasn't much in force, we still learn something from this, but maybe not what we originally intended to learn. With that, let's end the episode for today. I know this is a tad short, but trust me, the next one is going to be a doozy. Until then, thanks for listening, and come back next time for another exciting episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation.